This is coming from Galatians. Paul writes, but even if we, let me start a couple verses before. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That probably sounds familiar from our, our study as we went through Galatians. Um, this, that's from the first chapter of Galatians. And this morning, we are going to talk about uh, what a false gospel that Paul alludes to, that there's false gospels, one that's threatened the church today. One that is really threatening the church today. And so if, you, uh, if you're a parent, especially if you're a high schooler, middle schooler, if you work with, with youth at churches, schools, wherever, like this will be important. Because this false gospel that's seeping into the church, and, I, and I, so when I say the church, I'm referring to the American church, the European church, and the African church uh, mainly in what seems to be going on. And it's a false gospel that, that comes behind with the, the Black Lives Matter movement. And when I talk about that, I'm not referring to the civil rights movement, a movements that are advocating for um, equal rights among people and equal opportunities. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to the specific movement that we see online, the specific tenets and the philosophies that undergird it. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And the reason we're bringing that up is because that is seeping into the church and it's creating a false gospel. And that's what I more care about, is this false gospel that's being pushed. And, and it, it may seem distant from us just because we're, we're in the Middle West and we're in more in the northern section, which we get to things kind of last. But this stuff is huge for leaders and denominations the biggest denominations, huge in leaders in the major seminaries, is everyone. And so it's, it's, it's very big. And so it's not something distant. And if it seems like that, it's coming. And through books, through sermons you listen to, it's coming. So we're going to address that today. And it it's, seems very influential. One pastor, uh, John MacArthur, a few years ago, he said this. Over the years, and honestly, some people kind of ridicule him for saying this, but he said this. Over the years, I fought a, num- I fought a number of polemical battles against ideas that threaten the gospel. This recent and surprisingly sudden detour in a quest of social justice is, I believe, the most subtle and dangerous threat so far. And he was kind of just kind of whatever. And now that we see that this is really charging in the church, it is seeping into it. And we're going to address that today because this isn't some uh, just a lollygag. And this is the gospel, the news of salvation, our only hope. And that's what we're talking about. So the question is, how is it that some seemingly very solid, very influential leaders within the Christian church that are, are being swept into this, that their theology point is seeming to change? What is affecting this? And it appears, and I'm going to put forth, it's what's called liberation theology. Liberation theology. It's a, 
It's a historical term for what it's called liberation theology, and it's what's seeping to the church. It's being resurfaced or refaced as social justice or the social gospel you may hear referred to. And let me dive into that a little bit more and what that looks like and what that actually entails. The history of this comes about right after World War II, after the devastation of World War II. In America and Europe, across the world, the devastation and the, the tenets of this, this liberation theology is this goal to remake the social order politically, economically, and culturally. That means that everything is predicated around this. That's what the main goal is, is to remake the society. There's different branches that have branched off of this. Uh, liberation theology, the, the proper, refers to a move, movement in Latin America. Um, feminist theology, that's another branch of this. Um, uh, what's been historically called black theology has, has come out of this too. And these are all different movements that are specifically tied to the goal of liberation, whatever, however they define it, however they see fit, and what they consider within that. And the reason, again, behind all this, the reason I bring this up is because this is literally in these biggest denominations, the biggest leaders, they're talking about this in a, in a, in a very uh, big, like a, it's good, they're promoting it. They're promoting these things. And we'll continue to look at this passage today, which shows that this is not what Christ talks about. In liberation theology, it has, uh, if you want to say, a Marxist influence in that it divides classes or groups up in oppressors and oppressed. The whole idea of figuring out who to liberate, who not to. And unlike Marxism, liberation theology sees Christianity and how they define it as the answer in liberating these groups and however these groups are defined. They turn, let me go through this, just so what, how this is just a different religion, a false gospel. They make our relationship with God completely based on opting for these, these classes or these different groups that they refer to or what they identify as. Sin in this false gospel is not so much a violation of God's law and against God. Rather, it's more defined as a relation to other people. And yes, sin is that, but they reduce it to only that. And that's what the issue is. Salvation within liberation theology is equated to the process of liberation. Freedom from death, from sin, and the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ is overlooked. Sometimes not even mentioned. As one uh, scholar summarizes, the salvation of all persons from oppression is the goal of God's work in history. It must therefore be the task of those who believe in him. Utilizing every means possible, including political effort and even revolution if necessary. So liberation theology, this, this false gospel, is presenting everything as not what Jesus has done, but what we must be doing. We must be doing this and how they define it. And the reason this is so relevant, obviously, with what we see going on, but our passage this morning, Luke 4, 14-30, is the most prominent text that they'll point to saying, this is what undergirds our theology. This is it right here. And so this morning, we're going to go through the text that uh, Max read for us, and we'll see how this, this text is about the gospel, about Jesus Christ coming to save sinners. And that's what it refers to. It doesn't refer to our goal, our mission, 
our prominent mission, our main mission, is to liberate in whatever that looks like and however that's defined. And so we'll see that this morning. And let me just say from the beginning, the liberation theology is very, very attractive because we're compassionate people. We understand. We love people. We understand that there, there are uh, unfairness in the world. We understand that. But what's wrong with this is how they flip it and that the gospel is this. It's that we have to do these, these things and not the gospel is Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life. He died. He rose again. And he ascended to heaven and he will return. And we can join him in the benefits of all that through faith. And so that's why this is huge. This is what Paul's talking about, a false gospel. And so let's dive in today into our passage in Luke chapter 4. If you don't have your Bible or haven't turned to it, uh, there's a Bible right in front of you in the pew. It'll be on page 807 if you're using one of the, the Bibles here provided by church. So let's dive into it. Verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. All right. So it seems like this happens right after the, the baptism. And Luke, he skips over about a year of Jesus' ministry. And we know that because John records this ministry that Jesus has in Judea, the southern part of Israel. But he's focusing on Galilee, the northern part of Israel where Jesus is. So there's about a year jump between uh, verses uh, 13 to 14. There's about a year jump. And 14 and 15 kind of refer to that, summarizes that one year. And so it says, Luke writes that Jesus returns to Galilee with the power of the Spirit. And we've seen throughout the first chapters here in Luke that the Spirit is central. The Spirit has uh, been using John the Baptist, Elizabeth, Zechariah, about uh, proclaiming Christ, proclaiming what's coming, these prophecies, what John the Baptist did, what Jesus is going to do. We see that Jesus is described as being full of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, being anointed by the Spirit. We see all of that. And what's interesting, if, if you remember, Luke is the first volume that Luke writes, and Acts is the second volume. And Luke very often makes a point of seeing the continuity between Jesus' ministry and our ministry. Just like here, it's very clear. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with him. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. In Acts, right in the beginning, Acts 1-8, Jesus, right before he ascends into heaven, after his resurrection, he says, but you will receive power, talking to his apostles, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so we see this continuity between what Jesus was doing and what the church we as so we pick up. Just as Jesus was full of spirit and empowered by the spirit, so are we as, as followers of Christ empowered by the spirit. But moving on. So we see it says there's a report about him. He's glorified by all. He's a pretty prominent figure. Remember, there's been about a year going by. He's been doing miracles. He's been healing people. They're hearing about him. Like, this guy is something. This is something going on. He's glorified by God. He's doing a lot of great things that people like. And one thing that Luke writes in there, he says, and he taught in their synagogues. He taught in their synagogues. In chapter 4, it's very prominent of Jesus' teaching. Jesus taught. That was his priority. If you have your Bibles in Luke 4, look at the end of Luke chapter 4. 
verses 42, how it ends. He says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving there. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. That his teaching, his preaching was prominent. This is why he came. He came to proclaim the good news, to fulfill it and to proclaim it. And we see in our passage here with Isaiah, proclaim is repeated three times. We see that this is a key mission of Jesus. And as we, I said that Luke shows this continuity between Jesus' mission and our mission as church, as the assembly of believers, as the gathering, we see, listen to this, the Great Commission, and Luke says this, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. Great Commission in Mark 13, and the gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations. Uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The central exhortation to pastors in 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word. The exhortation to us parents, Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Teaching is huge. It is prominent. Jesus says, this is for the purpose I came. They're trying to keep him. He's healing people. I got to go. I came to preach the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. So the commission is to teach and proclaim God's word. And we see that from the beginning. And you may have a sense of excitement. One, because we're finally in Luke chapter four. We're moving through things. But two, we just went through chapter one, chapter two, chapter three where we saw this coming one just talked up by angels, by John the Baptist, by, by Zechariah, by Mary herself. There's so much uh, anticipation for this one to come. We just saw the one to come, was baptized, anointed by the Holy Spirit. God the Father from heaven proclaimed his pleasure on him. We just saw him last week, victorious in the desert. Israel couldn't do that. Elijah couldn't do that. Moses couldn't do that. Abraham couldn't do that. On and on. They couldn't do it. But Jesus did. And now, this one that was coming, he's here, and he's mingling among the people. He's going to different synagogues. He's healing people. He's teaching. People are, are marveling, as we see here in our passage. People are glorifying him. This is something else. So this one that we've been waiting for, he's here. He's here. And so there's some anticipation. So moving on. Here, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, which, remember, is his hometown, where he had been brought up, I guess right there Luke tells us, and it was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he's at his hometown. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath as, as he is a, he's righteous. He keeps the law as a Jew. But keep in mind, this is the synagogue he grew up in. His buddies he schooled with, they are there. Men that probably helped raise him are there. Ladies who probably changed whatever they had as a diaper back then probably are there. Those he went fishing with. Probably there. He probably has clients in the synagogue. He built tables and furniture for us. He's a carpenter. They are there. So he's at his hometown. 
said God. Everyone there probably knows who he is. He has joined them for years to worship Yahweh together. So here they are in Nazareth. It says he stood up to read. And in that time, in these synagogues, uh, the Old Testament was read. And then uh, in the community, men would come up and had a chance to address the body about the text. And we see that here with Jesus. That's what's going on here. And he reads, and you might see it in your Bible, he reads from Isaiah 61. And that's what this passage, this quote is from. The original context of Isaiah 61 is this figure, you could say the messianic figure, giving good news of God's deliverance to exiles. When the Jews would be exiled, this good news of God's deliverance. So that's the original context of what Jesus quotes. Now, from history, the Jews interpreted Isaiah 61, and this is important because Jesus builds on this or uses this. They interpret 61 to refer to God's new age of salvation, this messianic era, this new era, if you will. That's what they referred to. And now Jesus reads it, and we'll see, he says, Young, I'm coming bearing that, that, that new era, that messianic era that's coming through me. We'll see him refer to that. But looking at this quote, and this is where the question comes up, how do we interpret this? How do we interpret this? Um, liberation theologians would interpret like this is exactly these four or five different statements and specific actions is what Jesus came to do. He came to heal blind people, literally. He came to, to uh, liberate the poor, literally. He came to free captives, prisoners who are in prison in, 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 in Israel at the time. They, he literally came to do that. That's what they would say, that Jesus came to literally do these things, and therefore the church should be focused mainly on these things, the liber, liberating. But that overlooks, I would argue, Jesus' stated mission throughout all of the New Testament and the Old Testament prophesying to that. That salvation from sin, and it misinterprets the imagery that Jesus is given here, quoting Isaiah. Like, for example, let me give you this. Uh, the Beatitudes, which in Luke is recorded in Luke chapter 6. It talks about the um, blessed are the poor, right? And first, because theirs is the kingdom of God. And the poor there isn't saying that it's just the poor that are going to be blessed. Rather, talk about those who are in need, that know their need, that see their need, that they'll be blessed, the kingdom of God. And it's interesting that the blessing isn't now, that they'll be liberated now, but theirs is the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual uh, uh, reality. And so I'm just showing that this imagery is not specific, or it's not these specific actions, but it's comprehensive. The imagery here in Isaiah, it de depicts the desperate condition and the neediness of sinners whom God seeks to rescue from his judgment, the poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed. Basically, and it's funny that uh, Brad and Carrie are reading from Revelation, it's basically the opposite of what we read about the church of Laodicea. When Jesus calls John to write to the church of Laodicea, he says this, For you say, referring to the church of Laodicea, you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, but realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, Poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to note your eyes, so that you may see. 
Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. It's clear that Jesus is not referring to, they were literally blind, they were literally poor, there are literally all these things. In fact, they were saying, I'm rich because they most likely were rich. But Jesus is saying, spiritually, you are blind. Spiritually, you are poor. He says, repent and turn to me and buy the salve for your eyes so you can see. Buy uh, the garments so you're not naked. And so that's what Jesus is referring to here in, in Luke is the same thing. It's the spiritual imagery that's very prevalent in the New Testament. Jesus' mission is not to liberate the physically poor, the physically blind, the oppressed, and the captive. He does for some. He heals some, uh, some blind people. That's no question. And does it deny his compassion? Not at all. But that's not his mission. His mission is to spiritually liberate people from sin and death. And we are to follow this example by proclaiming this good news. And like I mentioned in this passage, three times, proclaim. Proclaim the good news to the poor. Proclaim the liberty to the captives. Proclaim this. It's about this proclamation of what Jesus has done already. And so we proclaim the good news. And so these actions here in Isaiah, they cannot be broken up and turned into these individual missions. Rather, they represent a a, a comprehensive spiritual reality of Jesus' message and hope for people. All right? So I'll break into this. The quote of Isaiah, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. We physically, uh, we saw that physically at, at the baptism, Jesus' baptism, where the Spirit descended onto Jesus. And now he's the anointed one. Literally, in Hebrew, is the Messiah. Literally, in Greek, is the Christ, the anointed one. That's him. The anointed one has come. The Holy Spirit has anointed him. He goes on to proclaim the good news to the poor, as he quotes Isaiah. And as we said, the imagery is for those who see their need and then respond to Christ. And the poor is a great picture of this. Because they physically are needy and they know their need. And so they respond. And so that's what Jesus is giving this image here of those that see their need and recognize that and respond. He, he goes on with this imagery. He says, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. If we were first century Jews and we were in that synagogue, when we heard captivity, we would have thought about Babylon we would have thought about Assyria. That the opposite. We know those times. It was horrible. It was horrible how we got there. It was just horrible being there when we were in captivity. And it's clear all through the Old Testament, specifically the prophets, you, speaking to the Jews, you are going there because of your sin, because of your covenant unfaithfulness. You have left God. You're going there. Captivity. And then when they got back, the prophets said the same thing. Their captivity is tied to their sin. And so when the first century Jews in Nazareth, in the synagogue, uh, people that Jesus knew, when they heard this, they think of, yes, captivity. They think of the sin. We were captive because of our sin. And they think of that. And so this is a spiritual reality. It's liberty from sin, liberty from our guilt, liberty from shame, liberty from the, the power of sin, as we talked about last week with, with temptation, liberty from addiction, self-loathing, despair, loneliness, contempt, liberty. And they would understand that too when they heard captivity. His next phrase, the next imagery, he says, in recovering the sight to the blind. And we know all throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, blindness is very often a spiritual imagery of people who are unbelieving, hardness of heart. Amazing grace, right? Uh, even he, uh, Keith, who wrote that song? Amazing grace. I'm blanking. 
Is that what it is? Okay, okay. When he says, uh, I once was blind, but now I see. And that imagery is used in the New Testament. Uh, Second Corinthians, Paul says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Seeing has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers. It's imagery is everywhere. Blindness is very often referred to as a spiritual reality. And what a picture. Jesus gives sight to the blind. And I'm sure all of us can think about, yeah, before I was following Christ, I was blind. I was seeking all these different things. I thought life was all about this, how blind I was, but now I can see that that's not what life is about. And what a, a testament. Jesus goes on as he quotes, Israel, uh, quotes Isaiah. He says, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Amen. Oppression from sin, oppression from guilt and shame, the taskmaster uh, of guilt of doing this, 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 this oppression. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For, your, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This oppression you have, Jesus says, come to me. I will free you. And then my easy burden, I'll be with you in that yoke, and we'll go together. It's referring to spiritual reality of oppression. Jesus says, come to me, and you'll find rest. And then the last one he quotes from Isaiah, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this most likely, uh, in Israel at the time, referred to the year of Jubilee. You may have heard that. It was the, the 50th year where things would really, uh, slaves would be set free, debt would be canceled. It was it was a great year, Jubilee. Obviously, year of Jubilee, this is great stuff, right? Hey, I'm like being incredible debt, it's gone. It's gone. Praise God, right? Everyone else be like, yep, that sounds good to me. <laughs> Let's have that here. But no, so he that's this picture of forgiveness and, and spiritual liberation, which was at the center of Jesus' message. As as one commentator said, I thought this was really good. He says, because of the comprehensive character of the deliverance that Isaiah described, Jubilee was interpreted in Judaism as a reference to the dawn of God's new age. Jubilee, by analogy, became, becomes a picture of total forgiveness and salvation, just as it was in the prophetic usage in Isaiah 61. So it's, it's the comprehensive salvation that Jesus is bringing, this new era, this messianic era of hope and salvation. That's what this is talking about. So these messages, or I'm, I'm sorry, these actions, the images, proclaiming goodness to the poor, proclaiming liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, setting those who are oppressed at, at, uh, at liberty and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, they comprehensively describe Jesus' mission in the world and salvation to God. They're not individual missions that this is why Jesus came solely to heal the blind. To, to set those who are oppressed free, uh, which is what the liberation theology advocates for and what social justice advocates for. But that's not what this is referring to, and we will see that. But continuing in our passage, verse 20, and, our, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, which is how they usually taught is by sitting down. So they're kind of waiting for him to teach. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him.
there's a sense of like dramatic effect. They were looking at him like, oh my goodness. This is him who is healing people. Now he's here. He's gonna now he's gonna be teaching. And so they all eyes are on him. Verse 21, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's been fulfilled in your hearing. Remember, this is in the midst of all his school school buddies. It's in the midst of people who probably were changed his diaper, men who helped raise him, clients of his when he was a carpenter. This is in the midst of all these people who most likely knew him. And he says, today in this midst, this era that Isaiah 61 speaks of, that you've been looking forward to, it's been fulfilled in your hearing. The dawn of the new era, the king has come, the Messiah is here, the Lord of Lords is among us, the messianic era has begun, the new era has begun. So how did they respond? Verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Right? This is good stuff. This is an era of salvation, the year of Jubilee. Well, praise God. This is awesome. Yet we read this. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Is not this Joseph's son? The rejection begins. Is not this Joseph's son? And the grammar here indicates a positive answer. Yes, this is only Joseph's son. What is going on here? Who is this guy? This is Joseph's son. And he's saying that this is fulfilled now, that he brings this new era. So instead of appropriately responding to Jesus, they bring up this objection for a plausible excuse to reject him. They heard God's word. They were blown away, as we can see here. They are blown away, yet they reject. But Jesus gets ahead of them. He says, surely you'll quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. And from there, basically saying, you'll tell me, prove it, prove your claims, right? Prove your claims, Jesus. You claim this, prove it. He goes on, that you'll tell me to do, uh, we have heard you did in, at Capernaum, to do here in your hometown as well. And so they're saying, show us. Show us these signs, these miracles. The problem is not a lack of signs. It's a hardness of heart. The problem is not a lack of signs. It's a hardness of heart. Unbelievers, we who are believers now, we were unbelievers, not because of a lack of evidence. Romans 1 tells us that we all know that there's a God, but we suppress the truth in our righteousness. That's what God tells us in Romans 1. There is not a lack of evidence. It's a hardness of heart. Unbelievers do not need someone to give evidence. They need someone to give them a new heart. And it's all through Scripture. And then Jesus uh, responds, verse 24, he continues, and he said, Truly I say to you, and this hurts, and let me explain this. He says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to them, none of them, none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of, uh, of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only named in the Syrian. So let me explain this. And this is a, a punch to the face 
spiritually speaking, let's say, or metaphorically. Uh, first, he begins with truly. And in Luke, he only uses that to almost uh, introduce rebukes or warnings. So he begins truly. And we'll see here that in the, in the Old Testament, the prophets were almost always rejected by their own people. Almost always. A lot of them were put to death by their own people by speaking the, before speaking the truth, right? And there's a little wordplay here where Jesus refers to uh, back in verse 19, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, or literally the acceptable year. But now Jesus says, he uses this word that, the opposite word saying that, um, but you won't accept me. A prophet's not accepted here. Basically saying, God will accept people who come through Christ, but they will not accept Jesus. There's this wordplay. I just wanted to point it out because I thought, if you like literary stuff, that's really good. There's some good stuff here. But moving on. He talks about going only Elisha going to uh, only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And then he says, uh, Elisha going only to name the Syrian. So what is he saying? Basically, it's a warning that those closest to Jesus may miss God's blessing in this new era, while others who are far away will receive it. Those who are close will miss it. Those who are far away will receive it. Elijah, at that time, he bypassed all these Jewish widows, the widows in Israel. Where does he go? He goes outside. He goes to a Gentile, takes care of her. Elisha, there was a lot of Jewish lepers in Israel. He bypasses all of them. He goes to Naaman, who is a general of the enemy, the Syrians, goes to them and he heals them. Or actually they go to him, but he heals them. And so we see here this warning of because of your your covenant unfaithfulness, and if you reject the Messiah, me being Jesus, you'll be bypassed with these blessings of this new era and it'll go to those who are far away, the Gentiles. It is like today if a prophet would go around, or God would go around the United States, and he's proclaiming that Jesus is returning soon. But he says, but he's not coming for you. He's coming to bring blessing to ISIS. He's coming to the North Korean regime. He's going to bless them. That's comparable to what's going on here, what Jesus is saying. Yep, because you're, you're covenant unfaithfulness, because you're rejecting the Messiah, you're going to be bypassed. And they're going to, the, the, the Gentiles going out. How do they respond? Did they like that? When they heard these things, so ending this passage, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. All, most likely his family members, his extended family, all of his friends from his hometown, those who grew up in, they all were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove, drove him out of the town and brought him to the bra of, a, of, a, of, of the hill at which their town was built so they could throw him off down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. They wanted to kill him. We see the shadow of the cross right from the beginning. They wanted to kill him. So we see in this text, it does not teach, it does not teach that Jesus came for a political cause to liberate those who are oppressed according to their uh, identity group. The text does not teach that the church's commission is liberation theology. What the text does teach is that Jesus came to save sinners, 
to save them in their needy state, to save them from their blindness, to save them from their sin and death, and to pour out God's favor on them. The text does teach that the church's commission is to proclaim and preach this good news. It is to teach that all the Lord Jesus has commanded and to obey him. So we are, we are in the midst. As I said, we're in this midst of these, these competing commissions. The commission of liberation theology and then the commission of the gospel to proclaim the gospel. And we need to accept the, the great commission to preach all that God that Jesus has done, that God has done through Jesus, and that we need to obey him. Jesus the Lord, and to teach the, the salvation in him. Now, to close, I want to say this. Having gone through this and look at what the text says, I am sure, and it seems very likely, uh, that the church and, and here at Solway will be accused of not caring for people. Or not, uh, will be hearing that, you're like, well, they don't care about people. Not at all. That's not at all what this text says. It does not mean we will not fight for biblical justice. Jesus calls us to care for the poor. So we will. We will care for the poor. We will go to the food shelf and volunteer there. And we will. We'll fight the systemic oppression for unborn babies who are slaughtered in their mother's wombs. We'll fight that. We'll vote for people who are against that. We'll vote for people who are for God's law in that sense of not murdering people. We'll vote against those who are against what God says. We will do those things because we're compassionate and the Lord calls us to. But being very clear, make no mistake, the gospel is not these causes. That is not the gospel. And I bring that up very articulated because these very well-known leaders in the Christian church, specifically in North America here, they're saying that these causes is a gospel issue. I'm not sure if you've heard that, but that's very prevalent. This is a gospel issue. Meaning, if you're not doing these things, you have a truncated gospel, you may not even be saved, almost, is what some of them say. But these causes is not the gospel. The gospel is good news. It is what has been done for you. It is not what you do. It is not a list of things to do. It is a list of things that have been done for you. And so we understand, as Christians, we understand that there are some situations where there's this oppressor-oppressed dynamic. We understand that. But we also understand and preach that is sin and alienation from God, that the dilemma that confronts both the oppressed and the oppressor. The oppressed needs the gospel and salvation just as much as the oppressor. And so the, the mission here at church, the mission here at Solway, is not primarily to confront society structures so they can be transformed. But the mission is to proclaim and teach the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, focused on individuals, focused on their salvation and their progressive sanctification, meaning their progressive obedience to God, and which this, doing that, will lead to larger social issues being changed as more and more individuals are growing as disciples and growing in obedience under the Lordship of Christ. Let me say that differently. The only answer to real justice in the world is the gospel. And that's not just some superficial statement. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ preached. It is the gospel believed by God's people. It is the gospel that progressively bearing fruit by the work of the Holy Spirit that will end racism, that will end corruption, abortion, sex trafficking. That is what's going to do it. It is the gospel going out to individuals. So we'll preach it. 
we will preach it. The gospel, the good news of Christ. Not liberation theology, not social justice. The gospel that's expressed not in do this, but it's expressed, this is done for you. So Jesus comes. So I don't want to overlook this. He comes bringing great salvation, like good news to the poor, like liberty to the captives, like sight to the blind, like liberty to the press. The year of God's favor, amen? A year of God's favor. We don't only have that, we have it for eternity. In fact, it seems to allude to Ephesians. Eternity is not going to be enough to God pouring his blessings on us. We have God's favor in Christ. And so this morning, we're going to celebrate this gospel in communion. When we remember what Christ has done for us, we celebrate that we once were blind, but now I see by God's grace alone. I once was oppressed, but now I am free because of God alone, because of Christ alone. So I'm going to ask Brad to come up and the deacons that will be helping. And so let's celebrate communion together. Jesus Christ who has done for us what we cannot do. Amen?